show number 28 of I Read Comics. another podcast. Or should I say another fucking podcast? And let me tell you right now that I've got some rants prepared and I'll give you a, a, a language warning right now because probably you'll hear lots of bad language. And you know what? Because I'm really mad, I'm going to do the rants right now and get them out of the way. And then we'll get into the comics reviews because I do have some really good stuff that I want to talk about this week. Some mediocre stuff too. But let's do the rants because I know you've been waiting for it. So the first rant is because I just listened to another episode of another comics podcast, which I'm not going to name because I don't want to rag on somebody else in the same biz as me. But let me just tell you, I will die a happy woman if I never have to listen to a bunch of guys talking about women in comics. Really. I am so tired of hearing guys talking to other guys about what women like and how women are portrayed and whether it's offensive to women and what women think about it and why women buy comics and why women don't buy comics and why women don't go into comic book stores and why women read what they read and why women only buy manga and why women don't like superhero comics. You know what? Shut the fuck up. I am so tired of you guys talking about it. Because you don't know what you're talking about. You're guys. You've never been a woman. You might have girlfriends, and bravo if you do, but you don't know what it's like. You don't know what women are thinking. In most cases, you haven't even bothered to ask women what they're thinking. You're just kind of making it up as you go along. And I aim this at all the writers and artists for comic books as well, who never bother to ask women about anything. When they're creating a woman character, when they're drawing a woman character, when they're putting words in her mouth, when they're dressing her, it all comes out of their adolescent imaginations. And I know I'm spreading the tar pretty wide here, so, you know, this doesn't apply to every single artist, but it sure as hell applies to a lot of the artists and a lot of the writers. I was just looking at something the other day from another blogger, another female blogger, I believe, who pointed out that in this particular panel, there were these two women who were woken up from a sleep and they were wearing lace bras, lace underwear, as they were just woken up from a sound sleep. Like, when does that ever happen? Women don't sleep in their bras. They don't especially sleep in lacy underwire bras, which are probably the most uncomfortable thing ever developed, aside from those horrible push-up bras to make you look like you have bigger tits. I mean, just can we have a little bit of reality? I know that it's so painful to most of you men that... You used to have 100% of the power, and now you only have 99.9% of the power. And this applies to the comics world as well. It used to be that hardly any, any, any girls or women ever read them, and now more of them want to. So I'm really sorry that you're feeling so threatened by all this. But just stop fucking talking about what women think and what women want and what women are doing, and go ask one for a change. Which brings me to Eric Larson. Because last time around, when I talked about Eric Larson, I said he was full of shit. And as everybody knows by now, he wrote another column to address all of the women who were saying he was full of shit and called it, you know, something about, oh, how great it is to take things out of context. So let me piss off Eric Larson right now by taking his words out of context and reading something. Because this is a part of his response, which, by the way, was incredibly horribly written. I mean, he's a good writer, and he can really write when he wants to. And most of his columns 
are well put together. They're well thought out. They're amusing. He makes good comments. He's a smart guy. But this particular column, this is the one from, uh, let me get the date right on here so you can go and read it for yourself and see what kind of stuff he was spewing. This is uh, Friday, May 12th. He talks about uh, all kinds of stuff, and I can't make any sense of it, and his thoughts are sort of all over the place, and nothing seems to hold together. So I'm kind of not sure what his argument is here. But let me just take this one part, as I said, out of context, which I'm sure, you know, he'll be pissed off about, but what the fuck? I don't care. He says, one of the reasons given for women not reading comics is the overly developed females that adorn many comic book covers. Okay, step back. This is Lena again. I think that's absolutely true. I was in Comic Relief last week, and I stood and looked at the rows and rows of superhero comics, and in fact, the ones that had women on the cover did have the giant inflatable tits or crotch shots or, you know, ass shots or whatever. So yes, I I would say that that's true. I personally will not pick up um, a comic book that has a a superhero woman with giant inflatable tits, no matter how good the writing is, because I don't need to look at that. Back to Eric Larson. I find that notion a little ridiculous, oh well, and somewhat insulting to the intelligence of women. Women aren't stupid. Thanks. They're certainly capable of discerning what magazines are aimed at them and what ones aren't on a magazine rack. Why should a comic book rack be any different? There are plenty of titillating pictures to be found on various magazine covers, and women can figure out in short order the difference between Playboy and Cosmopolitan, even though both feature attractive women on their covers. Women don't avoid all magazines because the covers on a few of them offend their sensibilities. The very notion is ridiculous. Um, Then he goes off on some weird tangent about comic book uh, stores being filthy little dens or something like that. He also says, women simply aren't interested in adolescent male power fantasies. Okay, (laughs) I guess. I'm not quite sure what he's defining as adolescent male power fantasies. Um, Let me skip a little to get to the next part. Again, taking language out of context. Oh, my God. There are magazines for men and ones for women, and that's fine. This is the best part. Women buy the magazines aimed at them. Say that again. Women buy the magazines aimed at them, which implies that they never buy magazines that aren't aimed at them. So let's see, magazines aimed at women would be, you know, Cosmo and Mademoiselle and everything else like that. So those are the magazines women buy. Women don't buy um, Scientific American. Women don't buy Time Magazine. Women don't buy Newsweek. I know that's not what he means, really, but that's what he's saying right here. Because, logically, the same thing applies to comic books. Women buy comic books aimed at them, right? That's what he's saying. Comic books aimed at women that don't have women with giant inflatable tits on the cover. So that means that, as a woman, you're not interested. He's saying you're not interested and you won't be buying any comic book that has a giant inflatable tit woman on the cover, But what if it is a really good comic book? I mean, I say I won't buy it, but there are plenty of women out there who would, maybe because the writing is really good. There's a whole bunch of comic books that that I don't even bother to pick up because of the covers that might have the best writing, the best art, deep stuff in it, really incredible things, and I'm missing it because it's not, quote-unquote, aimed at me. 
because it has a woman with giant inflatable tits on it? What the fuck is that about? How does that make any sense? As a woman, you can only buy the comics that are aimed at you. And you're supposed to be able to tell that by looking at the cover. So, honey, you go over and stand in that portion of the store where we have the girl comics, the manga comics. Don't come over here where the superhero comics are because those are adolescent male fantasies. They're not for you. You don't want that kind of stuff. Trust me, I'm a man. I know better. That's what he is saying here. I mean, fuck Eric Larson. Women don't buy Playboy because they're not really interested, mostly, in seeing pictures of naked women. I'm sure lesbians buy it if that's what they're interested in. They don't buy men's health because, well, frankly, most women aren't interested in men's health and getting prostate exams. And most women aren't really interested in, I don't know, tips to pick up women at bars. You know, I'm not really interested. I don't have a problem in that area. So I don't read those kinds of magazines. If there was an issue, I mean, it's just so ridiculous. Women don't buy, quote unquote, men's magazines because the content doesn't really appeal to women. So are now we assuming that any comic book that's a superhero comic book has content that doesn't appeal to women by its very nature? Is that really what the comic book industry is saying? Is that what he's trying to defend? That comics can only ever be for boys. And, you know, fuck, I was just hearing this on this other comics podcast that I was listening to, that women are just not interested in that kind of stuff, so let's not even bother to make it inviting to them. Because, obviously, men would not buy comic books unless they had giant inflatable titted women on the cover and, you know, pussy shots of them inside, basically, when they're wearing thongs. Because, you know, why would you buy a comic book? That's the only reason you're buying it, right? Is to see these these women who are dressed in dental floss. You wouldn't buy it because it's interesting. You wouldn't buy it because the art is really good. No, you're buying it because there are women. So let's put more women like that in there so that more men will buy it. Because they would never buy it if it didn't have that. You know, it's a fucking circular argument. You're talking to yourself. You're just trying to justify to yourself why you're putting these images in the comics. Women in general, from everything I've read, from every woman I've ever talked to, have no objection to having attractive women in comics. They can have big tits. They can wear interesting costumes that might show off their body as much as they show off men. But there is no reason to have overly sexualized women in every single fucking superhero comic book. Have every woman portrayed in a sexualized way. To have them raped. To have them brutalized at every opportunity. Because obviously you couldn't have good storytelling if you didn't have that happening to women. It was a quote from Harlan Ellison. And I wish I could track down the original of it. But I'm pretty sure I read it in one of these books. His books of of film criticism. And I think he was quoting a studio executive as saying, in any movie, a woman has to be raped, killed, or humiliated. And you know what? That's pretty much true. And it's pretty much true in most media, with very few exceptions. And that's what women have to live with every day. Why can't comics be just a little bit different? Just a little bit. We're not asking you to change everything all at one time, Eric Larson. We're not fucking censoring the artists because... We don't want them ever to draw women with tits, ever. That they all have to be, I don't know, clones, androids that are sexless. That's not what we're asking for. And as every woman blogger that I have read who talks about comics says, stop fucking overreacting to us saying a little bit that we find this kind of stuff offensive. And just a little bit. We'd like to see some comics that don't automatically assume that women don't read them and that it's okay to have this kind of stuff because, you know, they're only for men. And what the hell do girls care anyway, those whiny bitches? That's kind of the attitude that I get a lot of the time. 
And it pisses me off, as you can tell, because this is a big rant. And I'm going to continue to rant about it because, God damn it, not enough people are ranting about this kind of stuff. Not enough women are ranting about this kind of stuff because we're raised from an early age not to complain, to just say, okay, somebody will take care of it eventually. You know, I'm a woman, I'm powerless, and I can't do anything. Fuck that. Fuck it. I'll be back in a minute with some comic book reviews. still listening did I just like singe everybody's ears I have some really good stuff to talk about and the first thing on the list is an indie comic yay an indie comic called lackluster world this is put out by a guy named Eric Adams who wrote to me a couple of times some very nice email and said hey I'll be at ape why don't you come by my booth and I can hook you up with some of my comics and I thought ooh cool. So I went and I chatted with him. He's such a nice guy. He gave me the first three issues of Lackluster World, which is all that's out right now, but I understand that issue four is coming out pretty soon, and I actually can't wait because I am so into this story. I really, really love this comic. This is one of those indie comics that gives indie comics a good name. (laughs) This kind of thing I don't think you'd ever see from a mainstream publisher, but it's not a piece of crap, as so much indie stuff is. Um... Let me list all of its wonderful attributes. First of all, it's got a really interesting main character. It's funny. It's very well written. The art is really interesting. It's a beautiful comic book. All three issues are really nice. They're printed on nice heavy stock with beautiful glossy covers. They're really, really well-made comics. And Eric has obviously put a lot of love and time and money into this comic. So I heartily salute you for taking the time to do all that. Um, And then the story is great. The story is really interesting. It takes what you might think would be um, a really annoying character, and yeah, I mean, he is sort of annoying, but you really come to be on his side, and by the end of the third issue, things have sort of changed, and he becomes, and one of the other characters become much, much more likable, and ends on such a note that I just could not wait to see what happened next. So, to to recap very slightly, um, it's a story about a guy named Fahrenheit Monahan, and he's an albino, And he has kind of a weird pointy hairdo. And he kind of comes across as this angsty guy. He really doesn't like the world. And, you know, the world has not been very kind to him. As things go on, we find out part of the reason that he's he's such a grouch is that he has uh, two siblings, a brother named Kelvin and a sister named Celsius. I love the names. They're so great. Who are... Uh, religious freaks, and they're constantly trying to get him to come over to to, to love Jesus and all that. And uh, if you had a family like that, probably you'd be pretty grouchy too. Fahrenheit works at a newspaper, and there's a guy who works with him um, whose name is Herman. Um, well, he calls him Herman, and um, his he prefers this guy. His name is Cogswell, and he prefers to be called cog, which sort of says something about him. There's a lot of this theme about people going through life and not really paying attention, hence the name of the comic, Lackluster World. Um, And Herman, I thought, was going to be 
kind of a throwaway character. And then as the issue went on, and then as the second and third issues went on, he became really, really interesting. Because he's not just this annoying guy that you see at work that you can't wait to be rid of, who is totally superficial and only lives to kind of go out and get drunk on the weekends. He kind of... He's he's more in sync with, with Fahrenheit than you might think. Although he does have the annoying habit of calling him Casper, because he's an albino. So, first issue sets things up a little bit. We find about about how unhappy Fahrenheit is and how awful his family is. And that um, when he's not writing for the paper, he's actually a bit of a, um, a public vandal, maybe, is, is the right word. Or maybe he's a performance artist. There's a fine line between vandalism and performance art. But anyway, um, his, his art causes things to happen. And that's the whole setup for this. In the second issue, we get a little more from uh, Herman's point of view, which is kind of cool, and we find out what he's been doing and how unhappy he is with the way things are going. We get more of the craziness from Kelvin and Celsius, and uh, at the very end, we find out how um, Fahrenheit and Herman get brought together, and that I can, as this was coming to an end, I was like, oh, finally they're together. This is great. And now the story, the plot as it is, is really going to start taking off, and that is, is great. Um, I wanted to just read a little bit of the dialogue just to show you how funny it is. You know, um, there's, there's a meeting where Fahrenheit and Herman have to go meet with their editor-in-chief because both of them ended up getting into fights on the same day, and they're getting chewed out about all this. And um, Fahrenheit, of course, is complaining and saying, I don't want to be his partner. This is a big mistake. Do you really think that sticking me with Herman will actually help the quality of my work? If anything, it will just piss me off. And the boss says... I'm sorry, mister. Look at me. Look at me. My hair is so pointy and I'm so angry at the world for not accepting me because I'm so albino freaky. Boo hoo hoo. And he's about to say, shut up and get used to it. And um, then a big girder falls on his head. But it all makes sense in the context of the comic book. But I just love that. It's so funny. Um, And then in the third comic, we get, uh, not to give too much of the plot away, um, an effort by Fahrenheit's siblings to, again, bring him closer to God, which he manages to foil with the help of Herman. And the comic ends with Fahrenheit and Herman having uh, beaten up a priest to steal $20,000 from him. And as they're running away, Fahrenheit says, don't get any ideas about us being friends or anything, okay? And Herman says, Casper, this just might be the most fun I've ever had in my life. It's so perfect. It's a great ending, and it and it totally works in this context. So I just love it. Um, the art is really interesting. It's beautiful black and white art. Clearly, black and white art that's meant to be black and white published. It's um kind of an angular style where the eyes are really big. I was thinking it reminded me a little bit of um some old art from Shannon Wheeler who did um, Too Much Coffee Man. It looks a little bit like that. Um. But it, it's really interesting. There's a lot of beautiful gray shading. The layout is really nice. Everything has a, a black background on it. Um, and he's drawn people as sort of zombie-looking in a lot of cases, especially Kelvin, um, who who really is, as we find out, more like a zombie than anybody else. There's some um, really nice action shots in here as well that, that convey it. And there's a whole virtual reality thing that's just hilarious. But I, I love the art and I love the writing. I think this is a great, great book. It's um, totally offensive about religion. So if if you have problems with that, if you don't like books that make fun of, of organized religion, you probably won't like this. But as I wrote in my email to Eric, um, I kind of couldn't think of a better comic. It could have been written especially for me, you know, a, a freaky deaky main character and um, 
making fun of God at every opportunity and public vandalism and, you know, knocking down a priest and stealing $20,000 of him. Who could ask for anything more? So I give Eric Adams' Lackluster World a very strong recommendation. You can go online and see the website. It's at lacklusterworld.com. And you can get uh, the issues, of course, but you can also get some T-shirts that um, reflect what's going on in the books as well. So I will definitely let everybody know when issue four comes out, which Eric says will be very, very soon. But what a great book. Let me move along to something else that's really good, which is the new issue of True Travel Tales by Justin Hall, which I also got at APE. And um, Justin has been doing True Travel Tales for quite a while, and this is uh, the new issue that he's just put out. And it's great, like all his other comics. It's it's a mini-comic, really. It's like mini-comic size, you know, 8.5 by 11, folded in half and stapled. And... He's taken true travel tales by other people and illustrated them. And this one, I, I, it says it right on the cover. It's Tsunami, of course, because it's Southeast Asia. And the very first story is by um, a woman who was actually caught in the tsunami but didn't get hurt. But it's a very scary story, and I love the way it's portrayed. It's so, you know, it's a true story. It's so realistic about what it was like to have been there. Um, it's it's really very direct. Um, Justin writes a little more about his experiences there, and some of these other stories are what was happening to him. Um, and it's it's really neat. It's 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 like travel. I had reviewed another travel book before, um, which were um, uh, it was a sort of a sketchbook thing, and and I like that too because it really had the flavor of what travel is actually like, where you get in just weird situations and you end up talking with people that you never would have talked to before or doing things that you never would have thought about before or eating food that you never would have tried before. Um, and, and I just love the reality of it. Um, he talks in one part about, uh, the best thing that he ever ate. It's, um, a lassi that he had in Burma or Myanmar as it's called now. And you know, um, a lassi is like a yogurt drink that you can usually get in Indian restaurants, but mostly it's made with cow's milk. But when he had it, it was made with water buffalo milk. And he says that this was the best thing that he'd ever tasted. I mean, really, when would you ever have a lassi made with water buffalo milk and find out that it was the best thing ever? That's so great. That's why you want to travel, right? Travel broadens the mind. And that's the kind of thing you'll only ever find out if you travel. So I, I love this. It's three bucks. Um, you can get it from Justin Hall um, at All Thumbs Press. You can just go there, and you you might actually see it in a store. Um, I will mention that you know Justin's gay, and that is sort of part of this. But it's not a gay book. It's it's not about sex. It's not like the usual gay porn that I'm talking about on the show. Um, I don't even know why I'm mentioning it, but just in case you were curious. Um, and Justin is just such a nice guy. He's so sweet. He has another book out that I'm going to review, I think, on the next show, which is gay porn. So that'll be coming up. Don't you worry about that. But anyway, um, I would also encourage you to go back and buy the other issues of True Travel Tales because they're all really, really good. This just happens to be the one that I'm holding right now. <laughs> he says, the best stories happen on the road, and I heartily agree with that. So, yay, go Justin. So those two things I really liked a lot. Now I have to talk about something that I was not too happy with, which is um, a book called The Black Forest. And I have to admit that this book was given to me at Comic-Con 2004, I guess. (laughs) And I'm just getting around to reviewing it now. Whoops. Time flies when you're busy, let me tell you. Time flies when you have so many things to rant about and be bitchy about. My goodness. 
Um, so this is a graphic novel called The Black Forest, and it's from Image Comics, and it came out in 2004, and I went to the website, which is blackforest.net, and they've got other books out as well. And, oh, sorry, theblackforest.net. My mistake. And so it's got an interesting premise, and you know what? It has a great cover, and I think that's actually why I wanted this book. When we got back from Comic-Con, we were, like, divvying up all the stuff we were given, and I thought, ooh, the cover looks really good. And the premise is that it's a uh, a horror story. And I was always a fan of, of sort of the um, EC horror stuff and even some of the weirder stuff that was coming out um, – you know, along with the Vampirella line in the late 60s and early 70s. And, you know, horror movies are fun, and I thought this might be interesting. I'm a big Evil Dead fan, you know? I love that stuff. So I picked this up, and the first thing that I noticed is that the artist who did the cover is not the artist who did the inside of the book. So that was a little disappointing. The cover was by Michael Avon Oming, and the illustrations inside are by Neil Vokes. And I gotta say, I just don't care for his art style very much. It is very EC Comics. And unfortunately, I think it would have been much better in color than it would have in black and white. In black and white, there's... First of all, it's too dark. There are so many panels where I just cannot figure out what the hell's going on. And in other panels, there's so much action that I can't figure out what's going on. I I just don't think it was well laid out and that these very important action sequences... I can't figure out what's happening, like right in the very beginning. So, okay, let me back up a little bit and give the recap. It's a story about um, Germany, World War One. So we're back that far. And uh, there's some stuff about, uh, let me read the little thing here. The Germans are developing a mysterious weapon to break through the trenches. Um, there's an American pilot and um, a British spy who's a stage magician, but also an intelligence officer. They're behind enemy lines, and they go to figure out what this supernatural weapon is that the Germans are developing, and it's hidden in the middle of the Black Forest. So, there are bad guys galore, and many of the bad guys end up being your classic uh, universal horror guys, like there's a, a Nosferatu guy who's named Count Orlock, of course. There's a Frankenstein monster that's very close to Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Um, there's uh, werewolves and zombies and, you know, all, all sort of good, fun, horror stuff. And I think I really would have liked this if I had, A, liked the art more, and B, if I had liked some of the writing a little bit more. I just felt like it never quite lived up to the premise of what it should be. So the sequence right at the beginning is our American pilot guy who's uh, having a dogfight with these two German pilots. And I think he's supposed to be flying through the stained glass window of a church and then something happens and the German guys, one of them goes down in flames and then I just can't tell what happened. It's it's all a big mess with a lot of sound effects and a lot of shading that in black and white looks really pretty crappy. So I was very frustrated. I, I guess that's the thing about this book that, that I, I come away with is feeling really, really frustrated that it wasn't better. Um that the the premise was really good and, and it just never quite lived up to that. Um, and it could have been a lot more fun than it was. There was also kind of a, a little too much plot going on for my taste. I also have to say that the guy who's the American here is so fucking annoying. I mean, come on. I know that the stereotype of the American is that, you know, rough cut to the point, doesn't really trust anybody. And, and, uh, you know, even when, uh, they find an ally in the Frankenstein monster. He still doesn't trust him, and he's given him a lot of guff. And 
You know, he says, here's a good example of the kind of dialogue that annoys me. When he finds out that the Frankenstein monster is actually, as in Mary Shelley's book, very intelligent and can speak French and German and other languages, he says, So, you can speak French and German. Big deal. Heck, I saw a parrot back in the States that could sing Yankee Doodle. Anyway, it isn't what you say. It's what you do. That counts with me. And he's so abrasive. Like, why the hell does he have to be so abrasive all the time? It's like taking the American stereotype to such an extreme that he's not even a likable character. And if he had been a little more likable, I think I probably would have enjoyed this more. So anyway, apparently there were other books that came after it. And I guess if you like this kind of stuff, that's fine. But like I said, just very frustrated that it it didn't quite live up to it. And maybe in color, it would have been a lot better. Um, But in black and white, just kind of not working for me. So that was The Black Forest. Um, let me take another little break and then come back with uh, a few more things, some some good things, and then some sort of, again, mediocre things. Hang on. got what we got is um steven t siegel and teddy christensen's it's a bird which was published by vertigo this came out a bit ago let me actually find the publication date on this um this was 2004 and this copy was sent to me by um my friend david arroyo from the comic makers podcast and i had read about this book i had heard about it before so i was really kind of anxious to read it and i gotta say um, for all the good things about it, I, I was kind of underwhelmed by this book, and I'm not quite sure why I was so underwhelmed by it. I can think of a couple of reasons. So, um, to recap a little bit about this book, it's the story of a writer, and you know, you're always on tricky ground when you're reading a book about writers having a hard time writing, for one thing. Um, and it's a writer of comic books who is trying to figure out how to write a Superman book which is a very interesting premise. And a lot of what makes up the book are his thoughts about Superman, his take on Superman, what Superman means to him, and how he views Superman's place in our society as a symbol, not just as a comic book character. And all that's pretty interesting. At the same time, in his real life, um, he is dealing with um, a family secret about a disease and how that's affecting him and his mother and his father and his relatives and how that's affecting his relationship with his girlfriend. And it doesn't have, you know, a happy ending, but it has an ending and a resolution, and that's all pretty cool. Um, the art in here is really weird, and it took me a little while to get used to it. Um, the art does change quite a lot from section to section, so the main story of the writer's life is drawn in this watercolor, um, very white-faced, angular style, and people look a little like, I mean, I don't know, I kept thinking of the scream, you know, the Edward Munch um, painting. Not not like that, but they, they look very angular and, and very 
kind of anemic. A lot of the characters look really, really anemic. And when they get mad, the, the, the blood comes to their face. And then they look like vampires, or like they've got blood leaking out of their eyes or something. And it took me a little while to get used to that, that little tactic. Um, the art changes a lot when we go into these other discussions of Superman. And then it becomes very appropriately cartoony, depending on what he's talking about. So I like the fact that the art changed a lot from section to section. It's also a clue that now you're stepping outside of the writer's story, that's the plot, and into his thoughts or um, his um, his ideas about what's happening in comic book form, like how he might envision his comic book ending up. So I thought that was cool. Um, I'm, I'm glancing through it now, still not liking... The blood that looks like it's coming out of people's eyes. <laughs> they do look like vampires. I'm sorry. They really do. When I was getting ready to review this, I went over to Amazon and I looked at some of the reviews that were there because I like to see what other people have to say. And there was a review that says, this is a book that I think deserves a place among the all-time great graphic novels, such as uh, Frank Miller's Dark Knight Returns and Alan Moore's Watchmen. No, it doesn't. Not really. It's not nearly that good, and it's not nearly that important. It is very personal. It's clearly about the author and, and what he's experienced, but it it's not as good as Watchmen or Dark Knight Returns. Um, there, there's a good review of it over at the Lincoln Heights Literary Society, My Home Away From Home, uh, by Tom Good, and he found a lot of the, the same things about it that I did in, in that it wasn't that affecting for me. And I, I think part of the point of view that the author takes on this is that he's being slightly distanced from everything that's happening. He's not a very emotional person. When he gets mad, it, it happens twice. And the first time he gets pissed off enough that he punches one of his good friends in the mouth. And that seemed just like weird violence. I mean, do people really do that? Do they just haul off and punch somebody? And then in the last bit, he's actually having a fight with his father. I mean, do people really do that? It's not part of my world, but I guess if it's part of other people's worlds, I can accept that. But the the guy himself, aside from those, he he's very unemotional, and the art kind of goes along with it. It's very pale and washed out. Mostly it's done in, in grays and browns and blacks. So because of that, it didn't involve me, and I didn't feel touched and I didn't feel involved with the main character the way I might have if he had been a little more alive. And and maybe that's the point is that he doesn't become alive until the very end. And in fact, I'm just looking at the last page where he's been sort of reconciled with his girlfriend um, and they're moving into a new place and the new place is lit up very brightly with, with sunlight and it's all yellow. And it's kind of the brightest place that we've seen in the whole book, which is supposed to be showing how things are going to turn for him and how, how they're going to be better now. So that's part of it. But, you know, to go through a whole book feeling really emotionally distanced from the main character, it's hard for me to care about him at all. Now, I'm going to talk about some spoilers here. So if you haven't read it and you don't want to hear about this, um, go listen to something else or just fast forward because there's going to be um, some other stuff that I want to talk about. Anyway, um, spoiler. What happens during the course of the book is that he finds out um, something that he had known about a little bit as a child, that Huntington's disease runs in his family, and his grandmother had died of it. His parents never wanted to talk about it, and now his aunt has it. Um, and he finally, at 
whatever age he's at, I guess he's supposed to be in his 30s, has finally started to do some research about this disease, um, which seems like to me a little bit late in life to, to start getting facts about something that could potentially be affecting you, a fatal disease that you're going to die from. Shouldn't you want to know about that? Anyway, uh, he meets up with his father, and his father has disappeared um, because he's been trying to deal with the fact that um, the the author, Stephen, his aunt, has Huntington's, is dying from it right now. And there's a climactic scene at the end where we find out that um, one of the things that, that was most affecting to the main character as a child was hearing his father say to doctors and to some other people, if we'd known about the goddamn disease, we'd never have had David and Stephen in the first place. And this was a huge, you know, turning point in his life. And it, he has this fight with his father because apparently his father just feels really awful guilt ridden that he had these children and that he could have passed on the disease to them. Okay. And, and I can understand that, but it seems like all of the trauma that the main character is feeling is built off of this very thing that, when his parents finally understood how awful this disease was, they they could have wished that maybe they hadn't had children because it's a terrible thing to pass down. And that has done terrible things to him and caused him to be depressed and all this other stuff. And, you know, isn't that a normal human emotion? I mean, if you were a parent and suddenly you found out that you could have passed a terrible disease to your children, wouldn't for a split second you have had that very feeling? Like, oh my God, if I'd only known. It doesn't mean you love your children any less. It doesn't mean that you're not going to love them more than anything until whatever happens to you and to them happens. I mean, it's not a betrayal, and it's not anything to be ashamed of. And Stephen sort of says that to his father, but that that was the moment that fucked up his whole life, which is implied but not really said. It seems like, I don't know, worse things have happened, you know? I mean, the disease itself is the worst thing that could happen. And for someone's very real and very human wish that they didn't pass this down to their children, I mean, you have to understand that. It's it's being human. There's also a little thing I didn't quite get at the end, which is there's been this running discussion with him and his girlfriend about having children and he's been avoiding it because somewhere in his mind, he's thinking that maybe he could pass this on. And then in this last panel, he says to her, let's talk. Hey, you want to talk about kids? I mean, I've been thinking it over. So I'm not sure what that means. Like now he's considering that it would be okay to have kids. And okay. He even says this several times throughout the book that if you, if you know it doesn't matter if you know that you might have this disease. Having kids is always a big chance that you're taking because you never know what could happen to them. But, you know, I, I don't know. My personal point of view is if I knew that I had some kind of disease that could be passed down to the kids, I would think really, really long and hard about having them. And if I really wanted to have kids, I would adopt them. And I'm sure that's different for other people. But, you know, there is a responsibility that you have. And and. For me personally, so now I'm not speaking as like the critic person who's reviewing this. I'm saying for me personally, um, that's a huge sticking point. And I, it, it made me personally feel very uncomfortable to hear him talking about that. So that's that part is just me. That is not meant as overall criticism of this book. So um, I guess, you know, this book's okay. I really, as I said, didn't find it that involving. I thought conceptually it was really interesting but it felt like more of an intellectual exercise than um, 
a really deep plea or something personal that made me feel much more in touch with the guy who wrote it. So let's stop talking about that now. (laughs) And let's talk about a fun thing, a fun thing to end up with, the last thing for the show. And that's this new book from uh, Steve McIsaac, one of my favorite authors and artists. And it's called Shirtlifter. So this is what he's been doing since they finished up the Sticky series. And this is uh, number one, 395. And uh, it was made possible by a grant from Prism Comics because they were giving out grants. And I'm so happy that he got a grant for this. Um, and this is published by Drawn Out Press. And uh, it was three ninety five. And I bought a copy of it at Ape, another Ape purchase. So if you like Steve McIsaac and you like gay porn comics, I can't recommend this too strongly. Although I will say there's not a lot of porn in it. It's much more of a relationship story. And Steve's really good at writing about Um, characters who have a lot of internal conflict and I've talked about that with some of his other work and that's what this story is all about. It takes place in Japan where Steve himself spent quite a lot of time and it's the story of two American guys who have a relationship and part of their relationship turns on when they're actually going to leave Japan because it's very hard to live in Japan for Westerners. Um, Besides the language barrier, there's also the looking different and the fact that, you know, like with any... um, really foreign country there's always an enclave of Americans who live who are totally separate from the culture and don't really want to know anything about it and there's always this weird disconnect between people who choose to live as Americans in a foreign place and those who want to actually be part of the culture so we get to meet some of their friends and uh, see some casual sex and kind of explore what it means to be in a relationship when you're in a foreign country and you sort of want different things. Um, and I really liked it. I love his his style of art. I love the way he draws men. Um, most of the men in here happen to be pretty big and muscular, especially um, one of the main characters. And you get to see him naked quite a lot, which is always a, a plus for me. And you get to have a lot of Japanese and you just get to to see some real slice of life stuff. So I I really like this and I'm very curious to see where it goes in the next installment and what happens to the couple that's in here. I will be trying to have an interview with Steve sometime soon to talk about this book, what he's got coming up and some other things. But for now, I can say Shirtlifter, very, very interesting. Um, I think I read on his site that Shirtlifter is this um, Japanese term that he heard and thought was very interesting, and that's why the book is called that. Um, Okay, so one more thing I wanted to talk about before we close, and that's I've been thinking a lot about women who blog about comics because when fangirls attack is one of my most favorite things. I have it in my blog lines, and as soon as I see it pop up with something new, I immediately click through and read all these articles. And I'm really happy to be reading so many different female bloggers writing about comics, about the things that they love and the things that bother them. And it was great to see so much kind of unified over the internet response to things like Eric Larson's column. So what I've decided to do for this summer is to do a series of interviews with women who blog about comics. And my first interview, which hopefully is going to happen in the next couple of weeks, is by the two women, Kalinara and Ragnell, who run When Fan Girls Attack. And after them, I'm not really sure who I'm going to pick on. I'm going to go through the list of women who blog regularly about comics and get in touch with them and see who's going to be willing to come on and chat with me. And we'll be chatting about comics and about feminism and about blogging and about podcasting and all kinds of things. 
So if you, in fact, are a woman who blogs about comics, send me email, and it's at lena at troubledscience.com, or you can leave a comment at the blog, which is at ireadcomics.blogspot.com, and give me your information, and um, we can exchange some email and try to set something up. I think it's really important that there be... Um, more heard from the women who blog about comics because I, I get the sense and you guys tell me if I'm wrong about this but women who blog about comics tend to do it only on their blogs and don't really participate in the big boards like at Newsarama and other places where it's mostly a boys club and not everybody subscribes to when fangirls attack and not everybody reads it so I would love 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 to give a little more exposure to the women who are doing this and to have sort of an informal community um, I know that there have been lots of other um, efforts to do this, very successful efforts to do this. I don't want to make it sound like it hasn't been happening, but there's been, you know, um, Carnival of Feminists and the Mamathon and lots of other things that, that are always going on. And this can be just one more thing in that group. So you can all look forward to that. I think it's going to be really, really fun to have these people on. So I think that's the show. It's ending not with a bang, but with a whimper, I think, after all that fire and brimstone up at the top. And I'm sure there's going to be other things that I'll rant about. Um, but it felt so good to get that off my chest, you know. i got to say, I feel really good right now. So I'm going to play a little bit of happy music to end this up. And uh, I'll be back next time with yet another show. Stand. Ocean man, the voyage to the corner.